when my grandfather was Tokaluk. He was a runner. He could run for days, and he caught up to the polar bear. The rest of the hunting crew, they were maybe a mile back, but he caught up to the bear, and no warning, the bear turned and discharged, grabbed his leg. It didn't try and mangle him or anything. It just grabbed him and dragged him, walked with him for about a mile. It just carried him, making different sounds. And, and then uh, the rest of the crew caught him. So the bear let him go. He had a big piece of his pants missing. So he's about that, too. That's George Pamiok Anhyoktuk, hunter, guide, and Inuit traditional knowledge keeper from Cambridge Bay, Nunavut. He's our guest on this, the last of three episodes from Cambridge Bay and our series, Passing the Mic, here on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Before we get to what is a fascinating conversation with George about an Inuit world that no longer exists, a quick update on the second annual RCGS Polar Plunge. That right there, that's the happy sounds of RCGS fellows jumping into Lake Ontario in early March, part of our most successful fundraiser for the podcast yet. That's thanks to our ice plungers, most of them RCGS fellows, who dove into lakes, rivers, and oceans right across Canada. And to you, our donors out there, we raised over $30,000 to keep Explore going for another season of inspiring the next generation of explorers and sharing stories that build understanding. I also want to send out a special thanks to the following generous supporters of the 2023 RCGS Polar Plunge who donated at our leadership level. They include Bruce and Kathy Ambrose, Janet Annesley, Perry and Valerie Belgard. Perry was also a plunger with us at Meech Lake, Mariel and Jim Bradford, Ian Dara, Lynn Evenson, my big cousin, Derek Ford, Annie and Yannick Fournier Bleo Dagenet, Mary Gilmore, David Ian Hammond, Jennifer Hubbard, who also took the plunge in Cambridge Bay, Nunavut, in minus 40-degree weather. God love you, Jennifer. David Kajganik, Nancy Love, Nancy McFadden, Sandra and Gerald McGarvey, Catherine McKenna, who also enthusiastically plunged with us at Meech Lake, Reza and Marilyn Osman, John Phillips, Christian Stenner, who was on the podcast last year talking about caving, Mark Terry, who took part in the plunge in Chile Lake, Ontario, and Chris Weber from my fantasy hockey pool. Thanks to you all. And like any great grassroots campaign, we also got a lot of smaller donations, all of which were critical to getting us over the finish line and beyond. We couldn't have done it without you. A heartfelt thanks to you all. I'm truly humbled by the outpouring of support and by the incredible community that's built up around this podcast and the RCGS. And now, on to our conversation a journey into a traditional Inuit world and lifestyle that very few are left to remember. My name is George Pamiok Anuhiatuk. I'm a resident of uh, Cambridge Bay since 1966. Preceding that, I think I'm one of a very few left that uh, have seen both worlds. And, and by that, I mean that uh, I was introduced into the world um, where my parents, my mother, father, my grandfather, and grandmothers decided that they were going to live on land at the time when uh, the government was bringing people in together from, from the land, gathering them into communities. Mm -hmm. And my father and mother and grandparents decided, you know, they, they're going to stay on land. That's where they belong. And that's what, what uh, I was exposed to at a very early age was life on land, where it was just us and the land, uh, the animals yeah. that we harvested. So Yeah. So when when was this that you're... This, um, from, from birth, and uh, the first thing that I remember, um, first thing that comes to mind when I think back to my childhood in, in those days was the birth of my sibling in the igloo. Uh, we're sitting on a caribou skin, inside the igloo, and my uh, mother was in a lot of pain. And she was delivering my uh, second brother uh, in the igloo. 
So that, that's what I was exposed to, that kind of life. And we, we, we lived on our own. Um, there was nobody else there, just us and Mother Nature, and uh, we depended solely on, on our traditional lifestyle, like mm-hmm. our ancestors before us. It's a life that I, I really relished. I loved it. Um, so were you nomadic then, or is this for your we dad? Were, we yeah. were nomadic, yes, were. because we lived with the seasons. Mm-hmm. So my father would choose, um, not by choice, but from experience, where we would spend each part of the season, yeah. whether it be spring, summer, fall, or, or winter. And it was always based on how he did the previous years in, in these areas. Uh, a lot of times we stayed in the same areas because of uh, success, and we were, we were able to, he was able to feed us. Yeah. And that's what it was all about back then, you know, it's surviving. Surviving, staying alive, and that included a lot of things, like the food that we eat and and, uh, and the clothing we wore and the shelters that... Uh, so that were handcrafted. So can you describe the, the different seasons and the, where you would move to and what, what you would be hunting for or what you'd be looking for? Okay, what I mentioned before, we were in an igloo, and that that year my father chose uh, the ocean in between Victoria Island and my birthplace, Bernard Harbor, yeah. to winter there. So we spent our time in igloos snow houses uh, made with traditional tools, traditional snow knife. There was nothing that I could see was modern, acquired from the modern world. Right. Everything we had was uh, handcrafted out of uh, wood, dripped wood, horns, bones of the animals that we harvested or my father harvested. So it was all traditional. Wow, so not even a rifle in that. Not even a rifle. Wow, amazing. And so you're hunting for seals with spear then? and Yeah. 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 All the tools were traditional, like this, the extractable broadhead was made out of the knee part of the caribou's, and needles were part of that same leg. The snow knife was made out of a caribou leg. Amazing. All traditional stuff. Um, my father made sleds out because there's, there's no timber on a tundra. Mm-hmm. So um, my father, when he needed to, in the fall time when it started to freeze, he would make his own sled using the hide off a bearded seal and then um, using the fish that he caught, uh, lining the fish inside the hide, rolling it, and to get that particular shape. So that that's that's how we lived. That's how we, I remember those days very clearly. Watching, we learned by, uh, um, you know, by observing. There wasn't uh, too much direction when, when he would be doing things. He would say, watch, watch closely. So we learned by example. Yeah. A lot of the uh, technical stuff was, they would sit us down and explain to us what we needed to do and then show us how to do it. And, and that's how we, we survived. We handed down from their parents to my grandfather, to my father, and then to me. And I passed this on to my children. But that part of the world is gone. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, there's nobody on, on, on in the north that lives like that anymore. Um, it's a different world. When I think back in those days in the winter time, uh, starting I would say early September, was the last bit of heat that we felt, you know, natural heat outside temperature. Mm-hmm. So that little bit of a uh, temperature that was about above zero, we never felt that again until the following year in uh, May and June when, when the temperature rose again. Right. Because when you live in an igloo, an igloo is snow. Yeah. So any kind of heat that you put into the igloo melts the snow. Right. And, and, and of course, when, you, when it melts, it turns to ice. Right. And ice is cold. So uh, it was a struggle in the, in the sense that 
every few days my father would be building a new igloo all winter. Wow. So. Would you move around? We or? moved around yeah. all, all the time. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. he depleted an area of seals, then he would go on and, and look for another spot for the seal. Right. So the, went, it would go on all year, all winter. Like so that. the whole winter you'd be out on the sea ice? We'd be out yeah. on the sea ice, yeah. yeah. And yeah. the thing about it, we never felt anything above zero. Mm-hmm. No, you know, our igloo hovered around, I would say, minus five, minus two in that range. Wow. All winter. Always, yeah. But you so, were you were in skins and layers of skins, I guess, clothing. Yeah, and we were at home. Mm-hmm. You know, we were comfortable. Yeah, uh, and that's that's what we're used to. Um, yeah, it didn't face us that you know. Never, you never thought of it. Oh, I never thought of it um, being in the cold. And uh, the only time that I did notice that was when we started to move here into Cambridge Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved into a little matchbox house our family and our extended family. So it was an open room yeah. uh, heated by a fuel stove, fuel oil drip stove. There was 11 of us in this little matchbox. It was uh, 12 by 20. Yeah. Just a small little place, but 11 of us in there. Yeah. No running water, um, honey bucket for a toilet. Right. But that was like gold to the, um, us, you know, compared to living on the land yeah. where, where you had nothing. I mean, just you and the land. And uh, yeah. So when you when the ice was breaking up, then you, would you you'd come back to Victoria Island and oh yeah go yeah. inland and w- it it was um, a decision again that my father made when it came time to leave the ice. Mm-hmm. He normally would go over to Nulahuk. Uh, place, my uh, birthplace, and he had a little shack there that he built over the years. Mm-hmm. Or he would go to a place we call Kikaktanayuk on the west side of Victoria Island. Mm-hmm. So it was between that and the mainland, and he would decide. Nobody influenced him. You yeah. know, the grandparents uh, depended on his his skills, so they never they never took a any direction, they didn't give them direction as to where they thought they should go. Yeah. And it's been like that over generations, you know, you have at least one person that's capable of looking after a family, uh, and by looking after, I mean to feed them, clothe them, uh, shelter them. Yeah. So who would, be, who, who would be with you then? So it sounds like your grandparents are with you, and you're, you have siblings, and is, are there other family members as well? Well, when we were out on the sea ice, on the ocean, it was just us, my grandparents, on my mother's side, mm-hmm. Akana and Hokaluk, uh, because my uh, grandmother from my father's side passed on really early in, in my uh, childhood. So um, he, he stayed with us too, both grandpa- grandfathers, but uh, um, just us, my I, they, I was the eldest, uh, two brothers, both younger, and a sister. Mm-hmm. So there was four of us. That uh, yeah, four of us, my parents and grandparents. So yeah. So are, I mean, are those happy memories for you? Very happy memories. Yeah, because it sounds it sounds hard. Yeah, it yeah. does sound tough. Yeah. Um. I know to a lot of people it sounds like a tough life, but in reality, yeah. You know, when you're brought into the world and you, that's the only way, the only thing that you do know, yeah. you know, growing up. And that's all I knew, you know, watching. Um, I was always very curious as to what my father and grandfather did when they were out because I wasn't allowed to go with them being a child, mm-hmm. you know. So until I was old enough to start following along, it was uh, vague. I didn't know what they did until... I think I was about eight or nine years old, and I finally started going along with them. Yeah, yeah. And you'd ha- you would have had a dog team then as well to move. My father got a dog team later on. Yeah. Um, the first time that I remember, there we didn't have any dogs at all. Yeah. Just us. Uh, I think we had one dog. Yeah. So and everything got pulled by sled, would it, or how would yeah, you? Yeah, we just he just towed everything around by hand manually yeah. Yeah. in the winter time. Yeah. So in the summertime, um, 
he he would take us between the islands in what we call Umerk. It was a bearded sealskin boat made out of driftwood. Amazing. And so uh, owned, powered by his own arm with, with the oars. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a sail made out of um, different fur, like caribou and seal, mushed together to to um, work with the wind. Yeah. So travel from my birthplace, Bernard Harbor, across the street to Reed Island. I would say that distance is probably oh, 60 miles, something like that. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so you paddle that open. And they, my father would take us with a, with a boat, a skin yeah. boat with oars, and it would take several days. Huh. Your father sounds like a remarkable person. Yeah, he's uh, small, you know, like most of the people that I uh, was exposed to in those days, they were small people, mm-hmm. small and stature. But but don't get me wrong, they were very strong, very powerful people. Right. You know, um, living life on land. Um, it's not an easy life, and, and uh, for someone to try and uh, live live that life and not be in shape, you know that that's like signing a death warrant. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and that's what they would explain to me too. Yeah. Uh, so we're nomadic. Um, he gathered food. Yeah. Gathered anything he could. So having no place like modern society today, we have freezers, uh, we have fridges that we use. Yeah. But back then there was nothing. Mm-hmm. So if they harvested a large number of uh, fish in a fall, mm-hmm. those were stored, uh, cast, and any other big rivers today where people depended on, on fish. Right. They would be cast sites, and you could recognize those. So they would um, cast the fish that they call while it was still really warm in August. You know, it was about a month, a month of uh, warm weather, and that warm weather does stuff to meet. You know, yeah. meat exposed to to air. Yeah. So um, it fermented. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the food that we ate was fermented. Yeah. Yeah. Because we gathered it and uh, seal, um, caribou, man, everything that they harvested, they, they gathered, uh, they were stored in a way. Right. Um, and there were certain ways that you had to prepare um, this food to age yeah. if you didn't do it properly. And there's some people that have uh, passed on because they weren't aware of how to properly prepare prepare the food so that it, you can eat it a few months later. Um, so you Fermented, tr- it, it, the smell of it, I, I think back, um, now the smell was something that were really, really rancid smell, anything fermented. Mm. Yeah. But, um, you know, understanding that if we didn't eat, we, didn't, we wouldn't live. And that was, you know, we, we were made aware of that. Yeah. So, taste, my taste buds had nothing, you know, it could taste like today some people would just, just the smell would turn you away, yeah. you know, it would be a turn off, but we were taught that uh, if you didn't eat, you didn't survive, so we just ignored the, yeah. the taste and when we ate it, but we learned to relish it and, and uh really get a sense of needing to have that yeah. taste uh, over the years. And uh, What's your favorite f- food memory from back yeah, then? It, it's really, really strong, especially seal. If you do seal, yeah. um, they prepare it in a way where uh, they use the blubber yeah. from the seal. Mm-hmm. And what you usually consume first is the body parts, the ribs, uh, all the meat is all eaten yeah. right away. Uh, so they would uh, use the blubber as a liner, um, cool, dark spot. They would cut the flippers off. Yeah. And the arm, the arm flippers. Yeah. Put them in there with fur on, and then as many as they could, 
and and then more blubber on top, mm-hmm. and uh, in a cool place, um, no sunlight. Yeah, you, you couldn't have sunlight into it. It would cook it and uh, make it poison. Right. So that's basically how they prepared the seal flippers, and uh, yeah, they would check them. It would take being much colder than it is today. It would take, I would guess, from memory, maybe a week. Yeah. Week, sometimes even up to two weeks when it was really cool before they fermented enough. And how they checked it, they would open, uh, grab a piece, either, either flipper, the lower or upper, and if the fur slips off easy, it's ready. It's ready to go. There you yeah, go. Yeah, so you just peel it off and, and enjoy. And away you go. So, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So, uh, caribou, was he hunting with a bow? Yeah, caribou was a different, caribou being a fleet of foot very fast. Yeah. uh, They weren't uh, available all the time. I mean, we could see them, but we had no means without uh, uh, equipment nowadays. So, they would uh, harvest them in the fall when they were migrating. Yeah. They made their uh, little skin kayaks, with that, which were very quick, mm-hmm. very fast, and they made their uh, lances and spears with ah, a tip okay. that they could, when they threw it at the caribou, yeah. you know, to get the caribou bleeding. Yeah. It wasn't a tool that they used to kill the animal. They used it to uh, maim them, to, to catch uh, them, yeah. try and hit a juggler, make them bleed. Right. And once they bleed, it, it don't take long before they, you know, in belly upon the water. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah caribou and uh, muskox and that were very hard. Hard to catch. Hard to uh, yeah. harvest, yeah. 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 Without the aid of a rifle. Yeah. So, um, I mean, how much of a threat were polar bears for you back then? Pardon me? Po- polar bears? Yeah. Were they, uh, Were did you yes. see them around and was that oh, yes. something polar you were... Bear. Um, that, this one one of the best topics that I enjoyed growing up was the stories of polar bear. Now, in the winter time, uh, when the weather was too bad, um, it was story time. We'd all sit around the igloo, and yeah. Grandpa, Grandma, they took turns telling stories. You know, not just fairy tales, stories about uh, events in the past. Yeah. And in doing so, they would explain that, you know, preparing you for your life, uh, preparing you for what to expect and mm. how to uh, how to accept um, uh, what you're seeing now. And I questioned that when he said that, and he said, uh, there are times when animals are plenty and times when they will be gone. Um, when there's so many animals, they deplete their food, so they have to move, they can't stay so... So when they disappeared, they went after the bigger prey, uh, bigger game, the polar bear. Yeah. Now, that that in itself, just just the sight alone of a polar bear, mm-hmm. they're, they're a huge animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to go after a bear armed with a, a, either a knife or a lance that you used to spear the caribou with, and that's to get them bleeding. This was all on foot. Yeah. So they would happen on, on uh, bear tracks while they're out on ice after the seal. And they would uh, share their information. When my father came back, he would take my grandfather, grandfathers, and, and they would track down this animal, you know, knife and a spear. Wow. On foot. Um I've heard so many different, did so many stories in the igloo, uh, and those are planted in my brain forever. But the explanation of how they did it, yeah. At, at first, they would sight the animal, you know, following the tracks, and then um, based on the posture, you learn to read the posture of the animal. Any animal they harvested by hand. Um, you know, they, they give a sense, they have body language that, um, that they display. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that display is what they waited for. They wait for the animal to react, to right. see what, what 
its intentions are. You know, some of them will want to eat you, and some of them don't want anything to do with you. So the posture of the animals is so. what they explained. Um, and the size didn't matter. You know, they could have the same posture of a six-foot bear as well as a ten-foot bear, have the same posture of what they want to do. Right. So if it had an aggressive posture, they yeah. would stay away yeah. from it. Basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, So they explained that the postures, um, when you first make eye contact, the bear will look at you, and whether he looks at you and... Uh, you know, he puts his head up and he's trying to get a look at you, recognize mm -hmm. you, and then once he recognizes you, if that head stays up, you know, he he wants to have you or, you know, he wants to eat you for dinner. Right. So that kind of posture there, all, always, yeah. always aware of that uh, it could be the last moment if they, if they made a mistake yeah. um, in reading the posture. So... It was just one person. It's impossible to to take down a bear. Mm -hmm. They did it like a pack of wolves. Yeah, yeah. So they would surround the animal. That uh, depending on posture. Now that posture would change if they pressured it, like any normal um, mm -hmm. being that's alive. You know, under pressure will change its feelings, and they can see that. Yeah something that uh, is really aggressive and thinks that he could eat you, and then um, coming in contact or interacting, uh, um, going after the humans, uh, the humans stayed together until the last second. Now, if you watch a polar bear um, on a screen TV, or real life is better, but their, their feet, they're not like uh, any normal bear. Their right. right foot, right foot is inverted. So he walks like this. Interesting. Yeah. It's so almost pigeon toed. Yeah. From observing them. So if the bear is coming at you, yeah. And based on this information of that foot, yeah. Inward toe. Yeah. He's very weak, moving to his right, but very powerful, moving to his left. Huh. So the bear's coming. They're armed with a lance or a spear. And they fake that move to get the bear moving and then move the other way. And as it's going by, they you know, try to hit a jugular. Yeah, yeah. And if it's one-on-one, -on -one, my grandfather was a prime example of that. Oh, look, he was a runner. Um, he could run for days. And he caught up to the bear. And what he was, what he was trying to do, it wasn't a big bear. Was, he said probably a little taller than him. No. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the hunting crew, they were maybe a mile back okay, or a couple of miles back. But he caught up to the bear and uh, going through rough ice and just hit flat ice, a uh, stretch mm -hmm. of flat ice, and he caught up to it. And no warning, the bear turned and just charged, grabbed his leg. Ah. Our clothing back then was caribou. So the bear grabbed him, and it didn't uh, try and mangle him or anything. It just grabbed him and dragged him, walked with him. No way. For about a mile. It just carried him, making different sounds and grunting, and, and then uh, the rest of the crew caught him. So the bear let him go. He had a big piece of his pants missing and four big holes from the yeah, canines. Teeth. Yeah. So he survived that, though. Uh, what a mysterious thing to happen, though. Like yeah. he, the, the bear didn't kill him, or you yeah, know, yeah. So uh, polar bears. Later on, when I when I was becoming up, I think I was probably about seven, maybe six or seven. We were on land, so my father went over to one of the lakes to get some drinking water, mm -hmm. shop some water, and on his way back. He found uh, polar bear tracks coming out of its den and going out onto the sea ice. So he was excited. He told my grandfather, and grandfather comes, why are you here? There's a bear. Why aren't you over there? And this was the time that they had acquired guns. Um, and so my father, um, in his own defense, he says, I left my rifle here. Yeah. 
And right away, my grandfather jumped on him and said, that's no excuse. Yeah. Because he, he's used to hunting with, without the rifle. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's no excuse. You know, and honestly, myself, I hunt bears, and they are the only creature on God's planet that make me shake. Yeah. Just because of their power. I respect that power they have and, and uh, their size. Power and size. And, and you, to this day, you know, they still make me shake. And just the stories you hear about them swimming, like they'll swim across the straits yeah. and then get oh, yeah. and run for days. And mm-hmm. yeah, like the power and the endurance. and yeah, the, very powerful. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So were your family at that point, you weren't Christian, like I'm guessing, is that right? Or, no, there was yeah. no things like church or anything out there. Yeah. We were just all alone. Yeah. But there was... Um, what you call shamanism? Yeah, yeah. That was the whole time that the uh, the indigenous people covered our land. They were present all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a belief that there's spirits in every, yeah. everything around you. Is yeah. that? And there's still it's still um, still in, in on the planet today. Yeah, for yeah. sure. No, no yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how would the shamanism, like how would your family conduct Being it? a really small uh, group of people, yeah. uh, uh, there was there was no need for any um, interactions with shamanism or, or what you call it, mm-hmm. tunics or shamans. Mm-hmm. For shamanism, um, nothing really that I have ever been exposed to, but I have seen the power of, of what, one of those can do. Mm-hmm. Um, very powerful. Um, my grandmother possessed those powers. She did, yeah. Can you? Yeah. And the only time that she she uh, exposed that power was to save my mother and father. They um, went out on the sea ice uh, premature. Uh, they broke through the ice, the sled. Yeah. Uh, the dogs, being a light, they, they stayed on the ice, but uh, we watched them. Oh, wow. And oh, her facial features, she turned into a different person mm. before my very eyes. I don't speak about this um, at all. This is the first time that I'm exposing, you know, word for word and, and mm-hmm. what I've seen. I've mentioned it before, but just to a... So what I did see, the sled broke through. The dog stayed on, but they couldn't move. They couldn't pull the sled. And it was sea ice. Yeah. Very thin. And i seen my mother from my grandmother. Her face just just became a totally different person. It it wasn't like a human face. It was. It's hard to explain. Yeah. And that was one of the scariest moments in my life. Was to witness that and scary in the sense that my parents were about to drown. Yeah. So she was mumbling, and her arm, her arm lifted, and I seen my mother's arm lift the exact same time that she left hers. And her arm extended beyond its length. Yeah. And she reached a dog that was 20 feet away from her and pulled herself and my father out. Wow. And my mother is very small. She's very fragile, really weak. She doesn't have power to do that mm-hmm. on her own. Wow. So it gives me shivers now even just to see that. And I've never told... I've mentioned what happened, but never to this kind of detail. Amazing. I mean, thank you for sharing that story. What a powerful story that is. A lot of people in the planet, you know, when they hear things like that, no way anything would ever happen like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. You have to be there, you know? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things on this planet we don't really understand still, and I think... I think, I think, and having that connection to the land that you had in that way, I think, connected you to certain powers that we mm-hmm. don't have connection to anymore, right? Yeah. yeah. If I may, I just want to, um, you know, go on a little more about that. That's uh, 
traditional knowledge, I oh, guess yes. you would call that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, those early days, um, the uh, the planet, you know, the Earth was a lot different than, um, in the sense that uh, our, our uh, winters were longer, uh, summers were shorter, really short, cold summers. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, our mean temperature in the summertime, which began probably mid-June, we'd start getting temperatures above zero, one above, two above, nothing over that, right. one or two degrees over. So the... Um, melting process back then was would take forever for the snow to leave, for the ice to leave the ocean. Um, anywhere we were across the north, ice hung around mid-August, third week in August sometimes we'd be able to take a boat navigating through ice. The ice never really went away. Um, our high temperature a really, really hot day back then was five degrees. Wow, yeah. It, it averaged one to two degrees. So all summer, we always had our uh, skin clothes on. Mm -hmm. You know, it was impossible to be outdoors with with no um, no light, light clothing. Yeah, yeah. So um, the winters came, um, the sea ice was formed, in, towards the end of September, uh, we could cross the strait here as early as the first week in October and uh, go and uh, hunt caribou and, and anything that the mainland has to offer. And we used to look forward to getting across, across the strait. And I speak of this because at the time there was no caribou and no muskox on the island. So when that sea ice formed in, in October, very early October, we would go across and uh, harvest our caribou. And those kind of temperatures, you know, that was normal back then. Yeah. And the animals, there wasn't any animals around on the island. We were the point in time where the numbers like today depleted. Yeah. Uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we had thousands of both caribou and muskox. Any direction that you left town, you would run into caribou or muskox. Any yeah. direction, there were so many. So, um, and that's changed. With that yeah. cool temperature and uh, early fall, late spring thaw, and then, um, you know, it, it kept getting warmer. We had very little rain in the summer, very little vegetation on the island. Mm -hmm. um, when we left in a boat to go sailing or, or to go to the mainland, and you look back on the island, it was just a dull, no color to it, just brown, mm -hmm. no vegetation. Um, so... Today, though, it's a totally different world today. Um, yeah. You know, the last 20 years, the temperatures came up, the animals came back. Actually, they come and gone. The caribou were just into the thousands, so many that the uh, people working on for the air, airline, the airstrip, they were shooing off with bear bangers, the uh, <laughs> caribou off the runway, yeah. so many of them. Yeah. And same with muskox, you're just all over the place. So what's and I'm just going to touch a little bit about mm -hmm. what my grandfather used to say in in, uh, in the igloos. Yeah, please. Uh, I forgot about that because that was story time. And and, and those times he, sp he spoke of uh, so many caribou, so many muskox. And it was hard to imagine his stories. It's just like... It seemed like a fairy tale because he's, he said, you take a walk anywhere, you're going to bump into caribou or muskox. Amazing. Anywhere. Yeah. He said there were so many of them. Right at the time when there was nothing on the island, 
So um, his explanation was that uh, because the numbers are so great, incredible numbers, you know, what they depend on to survive. Yeah. They eat the land of there's no more food. So it makes sense for them to move. They can't come back, you know, to where there's nothing. Right. There's nothing left for them to survive on. If they came back, they wouldn't last season here. So this being explained um, by someone that had had gone through the same same time, you know, seen the changes, seen the disappearance of the caribou and the muskox and. and uh, his direction was, at the time, was that if you do see a caribou um, or a muskox, you know, harvest it because you're not going to see them around on the island for a long time. Right. And that was his direction that, that he gave myself and my uh, siblings. So um, today uh, our numbers are down. Um, For muskox and caribou, both. Yeah. Yeah. All the caribou have gone because they depleted all the food. The muskox are gone because the uh, snow geese ate all their food. Yeah. So it's a cycle. Right. And there's no definition for cycle in our language, but the way that he explained this, you know, it's cycle. The one he explained this. Yeah. That's how he says it. Year after year, it changes and right. they'll come back when uh, the lichen is enough to feed a large number again. Yeah, so you you feel like they will come back? Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, they'll come. It's a cycle. Yeah. You know, they'll come and go with the times because it's high numbers deplete all the food. Yeah, yeah. yeah they'll move up and then you know, twenty years or so, thirty years, however long it takes, they'll they'll be back. Yeah. Once, uh, once their food supply is back up. Yeah. I mean, you've lived an incredible life, and it's a life that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. what what do you think um, Inuit people have lost by not having that sort of nomadic existence or that much stronger connection to the land? Well, a lot of our people were made to move into communities, not right. by choice, right? But by the government. Um, you know, to my father's, in my father's eyes, that that was not right. To my grandfather's eyes, my grandmother, it's not right for a person to dictate how a person should live, or right. where a person should live. Mm-hmm. And and they explain that, they, they see that. Yeah. And, and when we were in that igloo, they would talk about pe- lots of people living in, in communities, you know, all the people that are normally in the same area, same situation, um, all moved into communities. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, uh, is it better? Is it easier? And they said, you have to do what people tell you to do. There'll be people telling you what to do. Right. And, and they didn't like that. Yeah. So they just chose, never came in contact. They just lived on land. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned you lived in a resident. You went to you were sent to residential school. Yeah. In Anuvik, is that right? Or, yeah. 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 And, and I'm sorry for that experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just wondering. I mean, you seem like someone who's still very connected to your culture, and the residential schools were set up to wipe out that culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering how it is you were able to keep your culture, your language. Oh, cow. you know what? I often. Uh, tell the people that asked me that exact same question, had it not been for residential school, I would be a totally different person. Mm-hmm. I mean, what that school has done to me, my peers, my my siblings, you know. Yeah. It's not right. No. I was six years old. And yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not something... I want to remember. Okay. It's yeah. painful. No, I'm sorry. Sorry for what that was and and everything that happened there. And okay. I think at the very, I mean, even just taking a six-year-old child away from his parents is abuse enough, you know? And so, 
But um, I, I mean, I've met you, and I've met your your daughter, who's also just an incredibly lovely person, and who is she's so connected to her culture and stuff. And I think it's it's I, I mean, I just think it's incredible what you've achieved, despite what happened to you in that school. Mm-hmm. I think it's it, that that part's always a struggle, you know. Never leaves, never goes away. Yeah, it's always back of my mind my whole life and it's played a large impact on, on my lifestyle so between my traditional upbringing and, and introduction to civilization you know lots of pain lots of painful memories yeah yeah does being on the land help? Oh, the land is my healing place. It's where I go to seek solitude. Um, it's home. Yeah, I, I'm most comfortable when I'm on land. Like if I, uh, when I lost my grandmother, closest person, she spent so much time teaching me. Yeah. Once she left, you know. Um, she directed me, she said, when you feel pain, come and sit with me. Yeah. I may not be here talking to you, but I'm here in you. That's beautiful. So that's where I go for comfort. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, I mean, what, what, what gives you hope for the future, for, for Cambridge Bay, for the Inuit people, for... Oh, I hope I have for the future. Um, I'll think about that, my children. I ask myself, how are my grandchildren going to fare when they become of age? I'm going to be gone. You know, questions like that come to yeah. mind all the time. Yeah. 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 So I spent a lifetime trying to uh, teach and share my life, my life, what I know, what I did growing up, and what I still do today. Hunting styles, uh, living style, survival. My dad played a major part in uh, search and rescue when I was very young, and yeah. he exposed me to that. He taught me so much in those young days, you know, how to find the person that's lost. Um, whether he's on foot, whether he's got equipment. He said, the first thing that you do when you look for somebody like that is to find out who it is, what they had. Find his print, find his footprint. So that's what I've done, you know, over my lifetime. I know there's a handful of people in Cambridge Bay that without the help of my father's skills and knowledge that wouldn't be here today. You know, from search and rescue, being able to find the people that all the people in search and rescue had trouble finding. Mm-hmm. But I put all my training, all everything I learned into effect, and, and you know, always come out positive. Yeah. And I share that with with my colleagues, the people that I search with. You know, I direct them in what to look for. Because the initial response, if you got a call at midnight and they're, uh, they're missing and they never come home, initial reaction is for somebody to go, uh, oh, I'm going to go check over there, over to Wellington, it's 40 miles, or over to Anderson, that's 30 miles. They pick a spot and go. Mm-hmm. They don't pay attention to... Uh, uh, they don't ask the question, how were they gone? Were they alone? Were they on foot? Machine? So I make it a point when I go out with somebody new, and I always tell them, um, when we stop together and you see me over by your equipment, behind your sled or behind your skidoo, I'm not there taking a whiz. I'm, I'm getting an imprint of your tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's great. So, um, you know, I encourage everybody to do that, to pay attention to what, what people uh, 
their equipment. It makes it so much easier to recognize a print based on uh, the slits are different right. width. Right. They have different tapers. They have different sizes, runners. All those things come into come into play when you when you want to be very effective and, and successful. Yeah. So that's that's what I share with my colleagues. Is that yeah my teachings from my father yeah. and grandfathers to uh, what to look for to recognize the people with. So when I'm out with somebody, I, I explain to them, tell them based on what I know about you, your trail, I can find you. We got separated. I can find you. Can you find me? <laughs> yeah. Make some things. That's yeah. the question. That's the to think about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think, so share, you sharing that knowledge that's from your father, from your grandfather, I mean, that's sharing that knowledge and knowing that knowledge is going forward. That's a lot of hope, I think, too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, thank you, George. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Sure. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to the team at Polar Knowledge Canada and the Canadian High Arctic Research Station for their support in making this series from Cambridge Bay happen. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review us where you listen. It helps more people find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. Right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just been a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats. Each man by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that